This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. As the number one rated sales tax solution, trusted by more than 20,000 e-commerce professionals, TaxJar knows sales tax. To ensure accurate sales tax compliance amid the latest software taxability trends, visit taxjar.com forward slash saster to automate sales tax for your SaaS business. Up today, Saster CEO Jason Lemkin and Bessemer Venture Partners Byron Dieter. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining that listen live and then the tons of folks that will listen later on podcast and on YouTube and all that. But um, just by way of background, uh, about eight days ago, Nick Meadows, who's CEO of Gainsight that Byron has invested in is on the board of it. We're emailing late at night. And we're like, you know what? We should just get together and just talk about what it was like as CEOs the last time things were challenging in 08 or 09. So we shot out an email. We had a thousand people come last week and people loved it. They, they loved it. And I thought, okay, who's the, who's the best VC I can get that I know and trust to talk about all sides of this. And obviously that was immediately Byron and Byron, several things. First of all, for folks that are founders out there, he's one of the few investors in, in SaaS that I unqualifiedly, even if that's not quite a verb or a gerund, recommend. So there's, there, it's a short list, folks. It's, it's probably going to be filled on one and a half hands. And also beyond that, um, Byron's been a founder himself of Software SaaS Company, and he has been, he's an OG SaaS investor before there are any unicorns. Uh, forget about the hot ones like Twilio and SendGrid and Procore and a longer list that he's done and Bessemer has done, but he did the OG stuff. He did, folks won't even remember these companies anymore on this. He did Cornerstone on Demand, which I think probably IPO'd eight or nine years ago, right? He did it's still public, still a few dollars. He did Eloqua, which you'd have to be an OG SaaS person to remember that was acquired for a billion for Oracle. So these, these were like the first acorns, right? They're probably, when you started investing in SaaS, there were no unicorns. There probably wasn't a public company outside of Salesforce that was worth a billion, right? No, no. When, when, we, when you were starting Ecosign and I was doing Trigo, there wasn't, there wasn't a single public cloud company, in fact, in 2000. It took uh, a couple of years before the first emerged and the first private unicorn was linked in in like 08. So okay, uh, right. all new land. <laughs> So yeah, LinkedIn. So, so there's no one that's sort of done all of it and then has empathy for what folks are going through than Byron. So I wanted to leverage this because there's just, my sense is the world is getting worse, but things are calming down a little bit on the venture cycle. We went through this, a lot of deals in transition, the deals that people freaked out. Things may be worse, but they may be settling down a little bit versus last week. But I want to chat through all these things and then just a couple framing slides for this discussion and agenda, and then I'll dig in with Byron. But these were a couple of tweets from the last day or two that folks might have seen. At times like this, the, op the opacity of venture capital is especially frustrating and perilous to startups. If VCs have stopped or slowed invested, they should be transparent about it. I think this is something that, you know, everyone with it, we're open for business and it's just really confusing. So we're going to talk a lot about this and I want to save some time to talk about the cloud because there's a lot of VCs that can talk about uh, bridge rounds but Byron is uniquely positioned that we want to talk about meta cloud issues because cloud is tied to our global economy, but also experiencing weird effects that maybe aren't identical to the rest. And I want to look at that in context, but we want to get some transparency that most folks will do. And then here was a follow up 
This one kind of hurts me a little bit. As a founder waited until we hit our metrics to raise and I'll kick my raise off at Sapster Annual. Oh man, I feel you, right? Folks maybe don't have the EQ to realize what they can't hear. Um, and I think um, there's also a founder lag for processing some of these things. Like what's going on? Why do these things think this way? So I really want to look behind this. And then this is the third one, and then I'll hit the agenda. I actually don't know Gil, but I assume he's an excellent investor, actually, uh, looking at him on, on his background. But any VC saying they're open for business is lying or stupid. Well, that's direct. <laughs> you probably don't want either one on your cap table. I'm still considering new investments, but our stratospherically high bar is astronomically high now. There's a lot to unpack in that. I guess reacting to everyone in the world saying nothing's changed, drop by Sand Hill and South Park, and we're still, we're still there. So, but Byron, how about this one as a framing one? This is, March 16th was like, feels like months ago, but this was a Twitter poll. Are you deploying the same capital as in the past? 30% said it, and then 70% said less. Kind of like, What's going on at Bessemer in the world in general? What's changed in terms of how many checks are going to be written this year in check size? Absolutely. Well, um, thank you for having me back, Jason. And uh, great to at least virtually be back with the Saster community. And I'll just say your intro is very kind, but um, probably most relevant to this. Let me say that I've got a lot of empathy for where founders are at right now. Uh, as Jason alluded to, we were both in your shoes back in the early 2000s going through this as founders and CEOs. And I had a term sheet pulled on me. I had to do layoffs. I had to go through this from your side of the table, so to speak. And now on the investor side, I, I went through the, the 2008 cycle as a, as a partner at Bessemer and a board member to many companies, and now also leaning on the experience of my partners. So we'll try to bring that to bear. But maybe responding to the, the tweet on uh, you know, the open for business, uh, business as usual comment and this, I think the idea that... Uh, it's business as usual is, is crap. Um, I, I don't think any venture firm is approaching it that way. And I think anyone that's suggesting that is, is misleading at best. Uh, I do think a lot of firms are still very much open for business though. However, you have to understand that current portfolio gets priority. That'll be a benefit when you are in the portfolio of a venture firm, but uh, the triage right now is non-trivial and uh, we'll talk more about reserves and those things. But companies need to first take a defensive posture on behalf of their companies. And so a lot of the time, energy, and potentially dollars are being spent there. The implications are that uh, fewer cycles and potentially fewer dollars are going towards net new deals. And there's also this idea that there is a lag. And we'll talk about timing, I'm sure, a lot. But it will take a while for the private markets to adjust to what we've seen very rapidly happen in the public markets. And I think that's going to impact deal pace as well. And if you had, like today, how, how many boards or board-like investments, maybe if you're even an observer, are, do you have, and how much of your week is taken up on existing portfolio, and has that changed in the last two weeks? Yeah, so um, uh, for me personally, it's, uh, it's about a dozen, and that's a mix of late stage and early stage, and overwhelmingly, the focus has gone to internal things. You know, I've had uh, direct conversations, texts, emails, we've had you know, quick board meetings, a lot of these discussions are scenario planning. Uh, fortunately, a lot of these companies took advantage of the good times and have stable balance sheets and can weather this, but that, that doesn't mean that uh, they, they don't need to take action. And so almost every company is going through some version of replanning, potentially hiring freezes, variable spend you know, controls, and setting up new dashboards to understand what are the metrics I need to be following so I can get those early warning indicators and headlights to know which of these many scenarios am, am I really on 
and how bad is it going to be? Yeah, and just to provide some context to folks, you're, you're an investor, but you're also running a multi-billion dollar uh, financial entity, right? Many billions of dollars. So that means a bunch of your time is just running a multi-billion dollar institution, right? You have help, but, but it takes time. Then there's your existing portfolio. And how much time typically would you have for new deals? And has that ratio changed the last two weeks? Just to give folks, is it, do you have 30, a third of your time been compressed to 10% or it's got to have been compressed, right? Yes. Um, actually, I think you nailed it exactly. One of, the, uh, one of the benefits of new investors when they come into the market is you tend to have an open calendar. And so they spend a lot of time on net new deals, um, maybe you know, two thirds or more. I'm kind of the reverse. I probably spend a third of my time typically on net new deals. And, and a lot of that is just the fun learning and you know, sitting in the audience at events like Saster and just absorbing and, and doing the mine expansion. A lot of it is uh, meeting with new companies. That's the piece that needs to shrink uh, in the short term right now is um, obviously I've expanded hours uh, in the day to address this. So a lot of evening and weekend work as well, but uh, current portfolio and firm certainly take priority. Uh, we've done a lot to Jason's point on uh, internal firm things as well. Certainly one of the benefits of a, of a multi-decade platform and a multi-billion dollar fund is that we have 10-year fund cycles. And so we don't have the, the business model volatility on our revenue side that, uh, that our businesses do, but we certainly have a lot of volatility in terms of uh, portfolio values, reserves, those sorts of things. We have uh, calls with our limited partners and give them updates. We have um, internal all-hands calls to reassure people you know, about their jobs and about, you know, the, the path and, and talk about the, the portfolio. And so those are normal things of running a, a large business um, that, that we share with you. Uh, and as a result, um, I think over the next couple of weeks, expect that it's going to be much harder to get VC cycles and hours um, that will swing back over time, probably well before the market does uh, in terms of time allocation, but don't take it personally. Everyone's got that internal triage that they're doing right now as well. On this, just one last thing, and then we'll hit the next slide. Relating to your, like, th give everyone 30 more days to calm down. Like, literally, if you're an EF or YC or 500 startups, and you're, like, going through an accelerator right now, right? Is there, is there any, I mean, of course there isn't. Is there any shame in just following up in 30 days? Do you get a pass if, if it's a challenging time? I mean, I, I can't pay any attention to any of this stuff. So what's your advice to folks in, in structured programs? Like, because that has pros and cons. It, it does. And uh, I think to the extent possible, hit pause if you don't have discussions underway. I think maybe think of it as bimodal and two extremes. If you've got discussions underway and enough momentum to complete it, hit it hard and try to like finish immediately. And don't worry about optimizing price or valuation or terms bluntly just get it done and think of that as speed over greed. If you're not in the process, I think it's going to be really hard to start an outside led process in the next few weeks and almost uh, pointless. And so give it a, a few weeks to play through. And what I, I believe you'll find is first time will unlock, you'll be able to get the meetings. And then over time, uh, you'll find that dollars unlock more and that you'll be able to find more of a match on valuation and terms. And it's really hard to close a net new financing with people you've never met in person. And so uh, I, I would have the mentality that you're, it's going to be open as a process until things return to, to somewhat in-person meetings. But if there's some prior contact, it, it may be possible. And just one follow-up on that, and this, this isn't fair, but it is, it is true, I believe. You can challenge me on it. I think if you are in a top-tier accelerator and you don't get funded quickly, there is a bit of a black scar scarlet mark. It's not huge. 
But if you're, it's, it's not just YC, but if you're in a top program, there's an assumption that Bessemer has an army of analysts, that all the big funds, that, that Andreessen Sequoia, they picked everything over. And it's not fair. And people are always looking for the, for the overlooked startup, right? We, we, absolutely. But can you, can you turn that frown upside down in this environment and say, look, I mean, this was a crazy time. Is, it, is, is there not a negative to not being the hot startup in an accelerator? So uh, I do think there's a positive that all uh, that's even bigger than that, which is things have been going so hot and so fast for, for the last several years that uh, perfection was sort of expected at every level. And I think that absolutely the, the companies uh, coming out of these structured programs, you get a hall pass on a lot of things and people still understand the, the quality of the team and the potential. So I think that that investing interest will come back and be there. The other thing, though, for those of you operating businesses that are already funded and are thinking through plans is that uh, you're going to get a hall pass on the next few quarters in, in terms of the numbers. Now, that doesn't help you if you're in a fundraising cycle and you still want to post you know, growth um, or at least the potential for high growth. But I, I do think that people are going to look past these quarters uh, years from now and take it as a wash. And so for companies that are running hot and have a lot of tech debt, process debt, for that just haven't been able to, to round out their team or processes, now is a phenomenal time to use those resources, maybe the go-to-market resources that aren't getting calls returned to, to redeploy there or, or tech resources to shuffle the prioritization of features a little bit. And I think that will end up being a gift, not one we, we wanted this, uh, through this method, but I think it will actually help companies be built um, in a better foundational way for the long term at the back end of this. Yeah, so, or, or maybe, maybe put it a little differently, if, you, if you're fortunate enough to have 18 months of runway, say, right, and you're venture-backed, take advantage of these next two quarters to work on your deferred maintenance, to build out your management team, right, to fix your product, to solve that damn feature gap, to actually do customer marketing instead of demand gen, right? Take advantage because no one's going to care. I mean, look, if you're, if you're running out of money or growing 0%, but if, as long as you're in the, a rough zone, no one's going to care. You're going to get a pass for the next two quarters, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and reflect on what you could do to build for the next 10 years. What did, what did you give up in the drive to close this week, right? To drive the biggest, did you give up your free edition? Did you, did you ignore your SMBs? Did you break your funnel? Did you put too much friction into your sales process? Like, can you step back and build your brand today and build your team? Um, because I think the leaders can build their brands today. It's not just Zoom. The leaders can run away with their brands when everyone else is hiding, right? Invest in your brand. I think, I think that's a great point and totally valid. I'm not going to be so bold to say that you should lean in on go-to-market in these yeah. times, as I'm sure a few companies will, will attempt to, but in those other areas, absolutely. Okay, this one's for fun, and I, but like, I want to talk about the, the Bessemer Cloud Index in a minute because it's super interesting to see. But this one is this eye chart, eyesore chart from Jeffries, but it does highlight there have been a few downturns. <laughs> There have been, I remember at Sastra Annual 2016, there was the flash crash. I think SAS crashed like 50%, right? It's hard to even tell on this chart. It's 26, I mean, it's low, but like, it seems like a long time ago, but like the That's mood was so yeah. gloomy in February 2016. People thought it was over. A, a leading VC who I love was throwing unicorns at the founder saying that unicorns were dead. Uh, it seemed pretty bad for like 13 days in 2016, didn't it? Yeah, that was uh, ServiceNow and LinkedIn missed their quarters. There was some fear that it was going to roll through, fell 30%, and we'd fully recovered by December. It was, a, it was sort of a false crash on um, signals that uh, people overread. This, by contrast, is the fastest 30% plus decline by the broad market in history. I mean, this beats the, the Great Depression, the 08, the dot-com, et cetera. 
So the, the magnitude and speed of this pullback across all sectors, not just tech, is unprecedented. The good news is that it is driven by this external um, shock that will have a finite end. It's not the unknown like the housing crisis was or the, or the Great Depression where you had a whole economic you know, complex equation unwind. In this case, a vaccine will ultimately solve this. The problem is that will probably take, you know, experts are saying nine to 18 months to, to mass produce. And so you could have this huge economic lag that's dependent on that and then a, a rebound cycle that's unknown uh, even after that. And so I think for a total market perspective, you know, we have to be pretty conservative in our expectations. But from a multiple perspective, I think that the thing to call out here is even after this pullback, we're still looking at, you know, eight, nine, 10 X multiples in the public markets on revenue. Other industries are used to that as an EBITDA multiple. Yeah. And so we're feeling a little sorry for ourselves and certainly for the, the human impact on this more broadly. But for the tech impact, what I would remind people as founders is, hey, raising money at 10 X was how all the big ones did it years ago. Like th that was the premium less, valuation years less. ago. And, uh, and if it falls to that in the private markets from these 20X and 30X pricings that were happening in early stage deals, you're going to be fine. You can get your business financed. The infrastructure platforms are out there to build on cheaper and faster. And fantastic businesses will be created in this time at what in hindsight will look like very reasonable numbers. And so what, and beyond, it's funny, you know, Nick, when Nick and I were chatting about what it was like all of last week, which seems like a month ago, and it is, it gets worse in many ways each day, right? There's no question. But Nick and I were both saying last week, not this week, that actually 09 was worse because only a CEOs, not for the 3 million unemployment claims. I mean, I, I can't even, it, you know, breaks my heart to even talk about it. But as CEOs in 08 and 09, it wasn't sure the world would ever recover. Like our financial system was broken. Citibank called me and told me to take our startup's money out of the bank and put it in a mattress. Citibank, the I don't know if they're the largest bank in the world, they're the largest US bank, told me to take my money out. And for better or worse, we backstopped, the, the Fed and the Treasury have backstopped a billion and a half in addition to the bailout. So it, it, there was no certainty back then, was there? We had no freaking clue what would happen. Yeah, and, and I certainly don't think we have the, the run on the banks in the same way, but I think a lot of the learnings actually are still applicable. I, I do think that shoring up the balance sheet, including debt facilities and potentially drawing them down makes sense right now. And I absolutely think disaster planning for a multi-quarter meaningful recession is essential. That the, the health impact here will hopefully resolve itself soon. Uh, the economic impact will lag that absolutely. And fantastic companies have been created in the last recessions. I mean, a three, uh, in the Bessemer portfolio alone, we had uh, Twilio, Shopify, and Pinterest were all you know, seed and Series A investments um, coming out of that 08 crisis. And so we, we are very cognizant of the, the fact that um, great entrepreneurship you know, happens across all cycles, that the exits tend to be clustered, but the entry points aren't. However, the rate and pace of investment and uh, of, of your scaling will, will be moderated uh, during this recessionary period. Yeah. And let's just dig into that because it's the advice you're giving folks. And it's sometimes it's confusing as a CEO when a VC gives you advice because they have a portfolio, right? And, and they're similar, but they're not the same. But when you're saying like prepare for maybe an 18 month rough period, what does that mean? How do I and maybe with like one or two scenarios for my revenue, what if my revenue hasn't shrunk that much, right? Do, do I lay off half my, half my company, Byron? Or like, how do I think about 18? Because there's so many scenarios, A, B, C, D, E, F. 
how the heck do I even think about 18 months beyond the next quarter? Yeah, so um, I'll try to come up with a few of the variables that will probably be leading indicators for how directly you're hit by this. And then there's a lot of nuances for a business. But obviously, one of the overlays is geography. China early looked like one of the early um, was going to be hit the hardest. They've actually uh, already started to stabilize and their their economy will likely build out of this next few quarters. But New York and California are are directly hit and probably much of the U.S. now. And so for U.S. focused businesses, which is probably many on the call and and Western Europe, assume that you're in a a direct hit industry uh, geography. The next is industry vertical. You know, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the success that you're seeing for that Zoom is seeing and certainly a, a Slack or a Peloton or a DocuSign or a Box will, will probably benefit from this. But we also uh, read about, you know, trip actions doing meaningful layoffs or Airbnb needing to, to scramble for cash. There, there's a whole class of companies that are serving hospitality, transportation, um, you know, the Gartner groups that we were talking earlier about that are all experiencing just complete dislocations, revenue that you know, could trend to zero for a couple of months. Uh, yep. So certainly if you're in one of those industry verticals, you need to be conscious of it. If you're S&B oriented, which would be, you know, the segment question, uh, which would be the third bucket, uh, the S of SMB is very clearly going to be hit the hardest. When you talk about those unemployment stats that Jason just mentioned, <laughs> world leading economists are talking about numbers that will go well north of 10%. Um, some are even suggesting numbers into the 20% when you include a lot of the, the seasonal workers or, or workforce more broadly. And that will ripple through the economy. That will hit SMB businesses very hard. And then the next thing is functional verticals. And I would say that the more core your systems are, the more resilient they will probably be if your customers survive. So recruiting solutions are probably going to have a tough go of it for the next um, couple of quarters. Um, MarTech solutions are probably going to have a tough go of it, whereas core uh, financial systems uh, will probably be more resilient if they're targeting mid-market or enterprise customers that that are going to to, um, stick around. And so I, I would run that filter through things, and then I would try to create your own dashboard for what are your leading indicators. Uh, if you have transaction volumes of your customers going through your system, even though that's not a revenue metric for you necessarily, that could be your leading indicator for customer health, which will ultimately uh, lead to churn, which will ultimately hit your business model. There's a lot of things in terms of usage engagement can be proxies. Uh, we've, you know, our portfolio companies are starting to see seats deprovisioned, which are probably an indicator that some layoffs have happened in their customer base um, or they're furloughing workers. And so those are leading indicators. And so just trying to understand and get ahead of it. And I'll tell you, this changes so fast right now. We literally have companies that last week said we're seeing no impact that are down 30 or 40% already into this week. And so uh, I would say be extremely conservative in your, in your projections and assumptions until you see positive signs otherwise, but prepare for some economic hit because the world is going gonna, is gonna to take it directly here. Yep. And let's um, actually, let's flip around. Let's come to this and I want to talk about this. So related a few things on this, we talked a little bit about triage. We can talk a little bit more. Let's talk about a couple of these topics, these inside topics like bridge rounds and inside rounds. So I'm a SaaS CEO. I am venture backed. I know most folks probably aren't statistically, but I am. And I've got, I'm hit. I'm, my business is impacted 50%. I'm not, I'm not as in a tough a position as maybe a StubHub or Eventbrite is. And I feel for that having produced some events, but I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a, can I get a bridge round today? How should I think about it? How are you thinking about 
amount of money to reserve for your companies that the versus two weeks ago? Like what's, what are VCs thinking about bridge rounds? So uh, most firms right now are going through the, the portfolio triage and just trying to bucket their companies by cash needs and availability and revisiting um, reserve assumptions and going through this internal analysis. And I would say for, for the vast majority of companies where you've created value, where there is you know, still a go forward uh, proposition, that capital will be available. Um, if it's not external, then it will be internal, assuming that your investors have strong LPs and have, uh, have done reserves. The issue you have to realize is that though they are fiduciaries of other people's money, and so they need every new dollar has to be done at, at what is seen as a market rate. Now, no one enjoys jamming their companies and, and venture investors aren't, you know, private equity, you know, experts at, at structure or trying to make their money on, on terms or those things. And so I think what you'll generally find is people will try to be as accommodating as they can um, rationally be while still being fiduciaries for their LPs. And so what that means is potentially metering the money out over time. So trying to get you to a position where you can raise outside money. Perhaps it'll mean some M&A lick pref or some, um, you know, or, or a higher than usual. If normally that convert would have been done at 10% discount to the next round, maybe it's 20 or 30% now. Um, there'll be some things in there where they just have to show that they're reflecting current times. But the reason to work with, you know, long, stable, standing firms is, is for um, these times as well, where they, they will get you through it. And uh, what I think you'll find from the best firms is they have plenty of reserves they absolutely are going to support not only their best companies, but their good companies and their high potential companies. And the companies that maybe have been struggling for a while and were struggling to raise and maybe tied on cash, um, those are going to be hard situations. Uh, I think you'll still find a lot of collaboration and um, certainly on the, on the cost cutting, um, hopefully even in, in many cases, the bridges, but realize that it, it's hard in those cases for the incremental dollars to unlock when, um, when potentially you've already been through a bridge or two and when the external market has given tough feedback. And I think those will be the hardest. A couple questions out of that. I find, first of all, that founders, they, they, have, they, they do two things wrong on bridges, even in the best of times. One thing they do is sometimes founders just assume the checkbook's always open and they literally don't, like the, one of the lessons from one of my investors I got when he invested, and it, it didn't hurt my feelings, but I remember it vividly when he invested. And he said, don't ever expect another check from me. And there's a reason that that VC said it, but it was, it was very visceral. But I, I took that to heart. And actually, I wasn't one of those founders that ever expected another dollar, but I never heard that message, right? So some founders don't get while the checkbook doesn't come. And then a different, and then, and then I'll ask my direct question. Then another thing is founders don't know how to talk about bridge rounds. So they actually don't know what the parameters are. They're worried they won't get a dollar. I was bad at this as a CEO. I didn't know... I had Jason Green from Emergence as my VC. I loved him, right? And when we were when we crossed like six or seven million, he kept saying, "If you need a little more money, let me know." But I didn't know how to like I didn't know how to frame that discussion, right? I felt like I might get a terrible deal, or like I might be I might be, and I'm not a great negotiator, but I just didn't know how to handle have a dis. And that would have been more opportunistic than a bridge. But you get my point, like. So I guess the question is, Byron, if you're my investor, can I send you an email today and say I just want to talk about a bridge? Is that, do you want to have that discussion? Can we have an honest discussion? And should all founders do that with their investors now? Um, so uh, certainly, uh, I would hope that you could always have those discussions with your investors. And usually it's, a, it's the text or the quick call saying, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And what the investors will say, uh, will say back is, let's go through the scenarios first to understand just what the needs are. And for companies that have a, a large balance sheet, 
Many of our companies are still doing top-off rounds, and the discussion is, is look, if you can get that outside you know, top-off done, we'll participate, but let's go out and get you know, a pile of net new cash while the getting's still good. Those were discussions that were in process, and we've got you know, several deals that are closing right now that are for those top-offs, and that can be large or small. For companies that don't have those underway, the next posture is, look, if there's value in the business, assume a bridge is there, but let us look at what the internal options are first, meaning how much cash do we have? What are our debt options? What are the cost containment measures we can take, et cetera, so that we don't necessarily need to use that mulligan right away, but we still have that in reserve and we can do other things. For the companies that maybe were, were right about to kick off their financing at Saster Annual and had been growing like crazy and doing good things, but don't have a cash cushion, as most early stage companies don't, then that's where the quick bridge discussion um, can make sense. And I think we approved two or three in our Monday meeting this week, and I'm sure we'll, we'll approve a couple two more next this week. week. Well, that's the yeah. end. You approved two to three already, right? Yes. And no, don't, there's no shame in asking the question of your investors. Oh. Like, ask, right? Ask. Oh. Absolutely, and quite the opposite. I think that that showing that you're on top of it, going in with the scenarios and having a clear point of view of this is what what it takes. Um, And those bridges are smaller than they normally would be because you're going through like, hey, how do we get through this time period so that then we can go out and and do a raise, you know, second half of the year, those sorts of things. Uh, But those dialogues are absolutely happening. And a related question, what I'd say is for those outside numbers, and one of the questions that had come in is, is there, you know, are the valuations... Uh, bottoming out in you know eight or nine months, or how does this play out? I, I think it's less that VCs are trying to to time it. Um, I don't think any of us would be in this business if we were market timers. We'd be hedge fund folks. But it's that um, just the natural inertia of private markets. It takes longer to adjust. You know, private markets can fall thirty percent in two weeks. The public, the or publics can. The private side hasn't adjusted to that. And I think that's what folks. You know, one is time. They're just they're they're doing triage internally. But then come mid-April, I think people will be uh, new deal minded. It's just that market cycle will need to come through to figure out kind of what is fair value again. Yeah, I think it's an important, and make, make sure after this, I want to talk about debt for a second, because it's an interesting topic you brought up. But I think what founders to understand is, look, the market has, has and we have, we have these weird little bounces, but the market's fallen dramatically, right? And it takes, you know, VCs can't just take the round that was at 50 pre last week, which and turn it into 30. And maybe they even can with the deal in process. We'll just briefly talk about that. But like new deals, it's hard for valuations to adjust. It, VCs can say, hey, you should be worth half because the markets are down 30 and startups are NASDAQ on steroids. So you should drop more. But it doesn't mean a deal is going to get done. Like it actually puts things in limbo. This, this time gap for private public just puts things in limbo. Because everyone has to adjust if they adjust at all, right? It just takes, it takes maybe 10 times longer. Yeah, and that's the thing where uh, we've got a number of, uh, of our CEOs have, have asked for deals that are in process, you know, hey, you know, I don't know if this is going to close or not, or what happens if they come back wanting to renegotiate? Is that unethical? And e- each situation is different, I would say. If you're on the 11th hour about to close um, and it's, you know, an early stage company where there's not much revenue or something to go off of, Anyway, I, we certainly expect those deals are going to close. The late stage deals that have been in process for a long time, we're still seeing most of those close. But at the same time, you know, it devastated me when my term sheet was pulled and we, we had zero alternatives and had to scramble when I was an entrepreneur in, in 2000. And that was a total miserable disaster state. And fortunately, we, we got through it. But uh, what I would say when if, a, if an investor comes to you, and, and this isn't self-serving because I don't think I have any of these situations in play right now, um, but if an investor comes to you saying, hey, we, you know that deal we've been talking about, 
And one of the reasons why term sheets are non-binding is because both sides do have options to back out. If they come to you and say, you know, I'd like to read us to discuss the pricing and figure out, you know, what is, what is more reasonable now, I would encourage you to be open-minded to that. When our CEOs call and ask that, we say, look, close the current deal on the table if you can, but if they want to reprice, have that discussion. And uh, it doesn't mean that you have to reflect the full pullback. It doesn't mean that you have to give it all um, necessarily, but finding some meat in the middle is probably the right way to start the relationship, giving them a little bit of a win and making sure that you can get it closed, uh, which is the most important thing right now. Yeah, I think this concern, which is all over Twitter, are down rounds and broken rounds and drama. We're going to get past that in four weeks because there won't be any more deals in flight, right? But the reality is, as, and I had multiple term sheets pulled for me for different reasons. One, a CO backed out. One, the, the VC at the last minute added a term I had to step down as CO. Like, maybe that was me. I don't know. But I had a multiple. But I, look, I had it hard. I had to, like, I had to, like, sign a full recourse note for my house and all these other, but I didn't take it personally because the world changed, right? I, I think I would take it personally if things were signed, um, but if it's a term sheet, like in the next couple of weeks, if things change, roll with it. It is a term sheet, right? It is an expression of an idea at a moment in time. And if you take it too personally as a founder, you're not doing your job, right? It's an expression of a moment. And yeah, I mean, it, 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 it really sucks if you sign a term sheet and you have three weeks of cash, right? That's the whole, that's, then there's this weird ethical thing that does happen. There are, there are, they're not folks we tend to work with, but there are folks that try to take advantage of those like out of cash situations. But otherwise, it's a moment in time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I'll tell you, I think most of the founders here, particularly the early stage ones, you probably are on the side of being very transparent. And so your, your employees may be going on this roller coaster with you as well. We were entirely transparent in our fundraising process. And when that term sheet was pulled, we had a lot of chaos in our employee base. What, what we did, this was back when plane tickets were cheaper and the like, was we, we did an offsite to Vegas for 24 hours and took the group out and said, you know, look, we'll spend the 2000 bucks or whatever it costs for a small team. But like, we'll get through this, but let's, let's just unplug for 24 hours as a team and just kind of be together and then come back and, and hit it again. But I think part of the, the beauty of, of small companies is, is the highs are super high and the lows are, are uh, unfortunately correspondingly low. But this uh, great businesses will be built and will roll through this. I will say that the cloud models, both because they play into the collaborative nature, but also the business models are fundamentally so much better than what licensed software experienced or what consumer models are, are experiencing right now, um, they are more resilient. And so, yes, it sucks that valuations have been hit hard, but the multiples are still pretty good in the absolute case. And yes, it sucks that um, bookings will slow, but for those of you with a book of business, your turn may go up, but remember that the licensed software world, your bookings could have gone to zero. Like there could have been quarters where literally your revenue was near zero in the 2000 period or the 08 period. And so, we have evolved a lot and this sector is um, one of the most resilient during this crazy time where um, no one's immune. Yeah. And I want to dig into that before we run out of time, but one last thing on debt, cause I I'd like to learn what you're seeing. Cause I don't see enough. We've been, you know, there used to just be venture debt and then we had a little bit of revenue financing the last couple of years, alternative non-dilutive financings becomes, I mean, who wouldn't want, even you would want, like, even if you're a VC, you'd love the next rounds to be non-dilutive, wouldn't you? Hallelujah. Absolutely. Would you like all the rounds after you invest to be non-dilutive? I mean, there's nothing more attractive than non-dilutive financing at 0% interest and no warrant coverage. But um, can, can that even function in an environment with the volatility we're having? What's going to happen with both venture debt and alternative things? And I love all these products, right? I'm a fan of all of it. Having used it, it I, I like to raise it and not use it. That's what I, the one thing I learned from John Doerr, raise it and don't use it for debt. 
But where are we? What, is, this, is this over? Are the glory days of, of alternative to venture on pause? Uh, so uh, very timely um, and extremely active point of discussion in our CFO forums and uh, the CEO discussions. In fact, yesterday we had an internal call with all of our CFOs and the CEOs of the three top debt providers, including Silicon Valley Bank, on these exact topics. And the, um, I think the conventional wisdom there, which we would tell our CEOs, which um, the debt providers may or may not like, is that the financial system is strong. There, there isn't, um, this isn't the 08 dislocation that was really generated from the banks out, but take nothing for granted. And uh, in the old, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law notion, uh, if you anticipate needing to spend that venture debt in the next 18 months, we would strongly encourage you to draw it down now. Have it in your account. If you have it, if you have it. And you, ha you haven't seen any, there's no issues right now in, in order to be able to call it. You think you, you're still able to call it? So yes, right now that, that's true. And it's intended to be insurance. So to be able to truly use that insurance, it really helps to be in your account. And so paying a little bit of a carrying cost on that, interest rates are really low, but pay, paying the carrying cost to make sure you have access, um, we think is, is worth it. In 08, we did see several venture debt providers, not the tier one folks, but the level below them, block lines or recall lines. And uh, in, in one very painful case in our portfolio, it killed the company, a company that should not have died because of the complexity and it had a broad investor base and it created this storm where we couldn't single-handedly fill the gap and, and save them given all the, the dynamics going on. And the venture debt provider took the company down as part of this. And so, you know, for those of you that can do equity financings, absolutely uh, do equity first uh, because, you know, job one of a CEO or CFO is never run out of money and equity, at least even if you have to price it at terms you don't love, at least it's permanent. The next best is balloon capital, the, these flex products, Jason, that you're alluding to. Uh, if you can get, you know, equity-like characteristics, so maybe you're not having to service the debt for two years or three years, and you can not only get through this, you know, the short-term to medium-term impact of this, but also get back in business building mode, then um, that will at least have equity-like characteristics where if it doesn't work over that time period, then maybe your business was going to be challenged anyway, but at least you, you live to fight through this. And things that I, I love as a founder that I see out there, just to finish, the, the lighter capitals, Tamiya capitals, clear banks, all these interesting things, without picking any vendor in particular, are they still going to be open for business the next six to eight months or are they going to be slowing way down too? So uh, I think the, it's safe to assume that the new entrants or the fringe entrants in most cases are going to be the ones most impacted. Um, that applies to venture firms, debt firms, corporate venture firms, et cetera. There, there's uh, even potentially the crossover hedge fund investors and the like. Uh, there's, there's a whole group of folks that came into this asset class or these, these combination of asset classes because of the 11 years of great returns and they're not experts and or they don't have long-term commitment or capital base to go after it. And so I would be most worried about those folks and the, the people that are the longstanding stable partners, um, you know, the Silicon Valley banks, the Comericas, et cetera, of the world are in here through the cycles. And, and I think those are worth the premium you're going to pay. Give them a little extra kicker in, in fees, warrants, or, or interest and, uh, and make sure you've got the best. Thank you, Byron. It's great. Cheers. Always a pleasure. And uh, keep pushing this cloud mojo out there, folks. Excited to see what you build. TaxJar automates sales tax for growing and mid-market SaaS businesses. So you can focus on expanding your services into new markets and grow your top-line revenue. Don't let sales tax be a pain in the SaaS. 
Visit taxjar.com forward slash saster to automate your sales tax compliance and protect your business from the burden of sales tax.